Crescendo Studio presents The Way Through. In this series, we interview established players in the New Zealand music industry to find out what they do, how they do it, and how they can help emerging musicians and producers on their way through. This podcast was funded thanks to Recorded Music New Zealand. In this episode of The Way Through, we focus on music producers. A music producer works closely with an artist to bring their vision to life. Kind of like the bridge between their ideas and your ears. Today in the studio, we are lucky to have Greg Haver, who has produced hits for the Manic Street Preachers, Melanie C, The Chills and Op Shop, and is a founder of the Music Producers Guild New Zealand. We are going to talk lessons learned the hard way, things to consider, the importance of contracts, and the joys of sustaining a long career in the music industry as a producer. I'm your host, Reese Muir. And I'm Dave. Welcome to the studio, Greg. Pleasure to be here. Nice to have you on. Today, we want to talk about your career and everything in there. We also want to give some actionable tips to young people, artists, anyone who's kind of in the game who potentially might need a nudge in the right direction. Hopefully, we can inspire people to make some calls, do some networking, and come out of it with some actionable steps. Um, So I've known you, Greg, for quite some time now. Quite a few years, I think, yeah. Yeah, Uh, working through the Producers Guild. Yes, you were invaluable in our first year of of the Guild when we were trying to figure out what the hell we were doing, which was... um, yeah, which is pretty interesting because I think any any organisation takes a while to kind of find its feet. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I think we're, we're two and a half years in now. I think now, and we're starting to feel like a proper organisation, which is which is good because I think the issue has always been that the industry felt there was a there was someone to look after producers, and there wasn't. I had this conversation with Anna Laverty, who runs the um, um, Music Engineers and Producers Guild in Australia, and um, and she announced that at Big Sound uh, last year. And the first reaction was, oh, I thought there was already something like this. Mm. And uh, and there isn't. And, and, and there wasn't here. And there's an MPG in the UK, which I'm still a member of. And um, it's just it's having somewhere that people can go for advice and find out about what are we doing right what are we doing wrong are there some protections for producers so it was really just um mm. you know I, it, it, there's always been quite of a sort of can number eight wire hand-to-mouth kind of approach to how producers get recompensed and um and we just felt it was uh time to kind of formalize those arrangements because we want people to be able to have a lifelong career as a producer you know i'm 61 years old now and i'm still producing records it'd be i'd like there to be the opportunity for all producers to be to have a lifelong career doing it so yeah so so i do appreciate your help in helping us get off the ground so no, yeah. no worries how often do you guys kind of get inquiries about royalties gone wrong or something like that well more what are royalties? Mm. It's uh, there's there's a natural presumption. As a lot of people move from being engineers into producers, I mean that was kind of my path into it. Um, although I never particularly want to be an engineer, it's a way for me to get into producing. And, and engineers get paid differently to producers. Engineers get a day rate essentially, or a per mm. project rate, but usually a day rate. Whereas producers, they should really be paid as an advance against royalties. So any money you get paid by the by the label, the artist, their management should be an advance against any future royalties that you get that record could earn. Now most records will not recoup any money. 
I'd say 95% of the records I've made in the last 40 years have not made any money. It's a pretty depressing statistic, but it's just, if you do a lot of work, most, you know, most music will not make money, mm-hmm. which is kind of sad, mm-hmm. but it's kind of the reality. But that 5% or 10% records that do can generate a lot of income. Mm-hmm. So you've got to balance that whole thing up over your career is, you know, we all go into making records with the best intentions. Like we want them to be successful and we do everything we can to do that. But so many factors factor, you know, factor into why a record is not successful or is successful. So it's easy to take your eye off the ball. It's like, well, if most records are not going to be successful, why do I need a contract for each project that I do? It's the ones you take the eye off the ball and it's like all of a sudden that band signs a major deal, sells like five million albums, and you, you were entitled to a royalty on it and you don't get it. It's happened to me. I don't want that to happen to anybody else. You know, I'm perfectly fine with it now. I've punched through walls, I've done my I've you know, I've shouted at shouted at sort of strangers in the street because you know, because I if I'd have just had those protections in place, something in writing, something you know, instead of just doing things on goodwill, I would have earned royalties on those records. So I kind of don't want other producers to be in that position because often you think this is the big record I'm going to work on. I'm going to, this is the one that's going to make me, you know, make my career. But it's, it's a record you did as a favor for a mate down the road that that's kind of like, that often is the one that you don't think it will be. And it is, and that's the one mm. you didn't get the contract for, mm. you know, your major record deal, your major artists with major labels, you know, you, you're going to have contracts. The label are going to present you with the contracts. You're going to be well protected. It's the independent artists who suddenly breaks through. They're the ones you've got to make sure you're protected for. So with, with the MPG, we've tried to, we've, you know, we try to make it easy for people to use contracts. We have like a two pager, really simple, legally binding it's just an agreement between parties so but because you get an advance against royalties you basically most records as, as we say will not earn any money so the money you get paid is in advance is probably the, all the money you're ever going to see on the record but if the record is successful everybody benefits the artist benefits their management benefits their label benefits you as a producer should also benefit from that so you know any royalty any if you start seeing royalties on a record it means everybody's doing well on it so it's not like you know it doesn't really change the relationship with you and the artist because you all want it to be successful so it's it's really just that, that protection that if if the record's doing well everyone involved in it is doing well so going back to your original question i don't get a lot of calls about problems with royalties more about what is a royalty and why am I entitled to it and how do I negotiate that with the manager or the artist without them saying it's too difficult because often the oh it's, it's you know it's too difficult to do the accounting well no it's not it's one it's one line on a spreadsheet at the end of the year with your accountant it's just people are not used to doing it so you change the narrative and make people used to doing it and that's a three to four five year program and if everybody does it everyone presumes that's the way you do it you've changed the narrative and everyone's protected we end up with a whole generation of producers earning royalties that can sustain lifelong careers Da-da, there's the music producers yeah. guild in one that's our that's our role in one goal so everything that i work on feeds into that narrative so you upskill you, you run the amps program which is the um uh, producer workshops and seminars so you upskill the production sector you you encourage sort of songwriting and production things like song like the song host program which i helped set up with apra um you have things like the new music development grants which 
which I set up with David Riddler for NZ on Air, which are grants for producers to develop new artists. So you just you do, and you have the producers' goals to protect our producers' rights. So all these things feed into one goal, which is to upskill the production sector and the songwriting sector in New Zealand. Now, there's a, there's a long-term goal of the New Zealand music industry matched to be a net exporter of music in the same way that, that the UK, US, and Sweden are. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Sweden's like a small music industry in comparison to the US and, and the UK. Why are they doing so well? It's because their production sector and their songwriting sector are really strong. Hard to name a New Zealand artist, easier to name, sorry, hard to name a Swedish artist, much easier to name a Swedish producer. You know, Max Martin being... Mm. being the head of that that tree so we do the same here we're a small industry we upskill that sector the whole industry benefits New Zealand becomes a net exporter of music in 10 years so there's often been the emphasis here that it's all about the artist and to some degree it is because that's where a lot of your profile comes from but how are the artists good they have good writing teams, that they work as a songwriter with other great songwriters. They work with really great producers. So we've got this really burgeoning production and songwriting sector in New Zealand that can feed into, into artists for generation after generation. You know, look at Joel Little's a great example. You know, he was a young artist. Now he's a 40-year-old music producer. He'll be producing records and writing, and writing songs for another 30 years. That's generations of skills going into work with young artists, you know, and this, and and we have lots of great producers in the country all doing that, and great songwriters. So the, the, I think the myth is you you just look at the headline artists and how successful they are, which has been how a lot of music is funded in New Zealand. Whereas what you need to be doing is building up the the backroom teams, the, the producers and the songwriters. Then that's when that's when you're going to be a, have a really successful industry. So yeah, you, you, so you look at programs that are going to do that. So there is method to my what my sort of kind of madness as far as running all these separate programs is concerned. They all, but they all feed into one goal, and that's to uplift, uplift that sector. That's a long, very, very long-winded answer <laughs> to no, your no, question. No, that's a that's a great answer, and you know we can break it down a little bit more from my perspective and and understanding what MPG's trying to do is to not overwhelm people that are kind of looking at a contract for the first time and going, "This is too much." Like, why would I need to fill mm. this out? Do you think that there's you know, because everyone is looking at it for the first time and then, you know, if you're a, a producer and then you drop it in front of somebody else who hasn't seen a contract, you're going, well, what do you know that I don't know? Why I mean, that's I because there is, no, there is no history of that happening here, particular, particular, specifically. I remember when I first came here 20 years ago to make a record and we started having the discussion about royalties and the, the, the response was, well, we don't do that here. I'm like, well, you do now because I'm here working on you know, we we producers globally work to a royalty on a royalty basis. Luckily, I had a manager who could kind of jump in and sort all that stuff out for me, and I'm glad he did because I still earn royalties from that record twenty years later. It was a Feeders Playground Battle record. Every year, Warner's get in touch. Please send us an invoice for X. For you know, it's like if we hadn't have done that, then that's twenty years of not in, not earning royalties on a record. What we did with the contracts was was interesting because we had. My original thought is we should have full legally binding contracts for guild members. But when we went out to sort of do, look at some peer reviewing of it, the, is, the issues we had was exactly what you just said. You put that in front of a young artist, everyone freaks out. 
So, so the MPG producer contracts are very much, there's two, two sheets, two sides of A4, really simple, legally binding, but basically an agreement. You know, these are the parties, this is what the royalty rate is, um, everyone signs it and dates it. So you have, you have something in writing there, you know. There's, you know, there's a reason why there's a saying where there's a hit, there's a writ. If you have a hit record, someone's going to come after you for money. If you've got something in writing, you've got some legal protections there. You know, it's it's a very basic contract, but it is something, and it and it creates a narrative that contracts are okay to have. And and the more and the more buy-in we get, the more protection everybody gets. It's not just protecting the producers, it's protecting the artists as well from unscrupulous producers coming after them for royalties after the record's been successful. You know, and tying up songs in legal. You know, even if even if you got those, you're going to run into, you can run into problems. You know, I have a good friend of mine, Amy Wodge, who is going through a big court case at the moment. She co-wrote "Thinking Out Loud" with Ed Sheeran, and there's a massive legal case in the states about that song at the moment. Um, luckily, Ed's got deep pockets, and you know that will get sorted out. But you know that you know there will have been contracts and everything involved in that. Mm. But someone will still find a way to come after if it's successful. We just need to. What we need to do is change the culture and create basic agreements where there is no searching through ten-year-old emails trying to find the conversation. Oh, here's one sheet of paper. It's you know what, what we sh what we will be doing with the MPG is having some sort of database that we can keep those contracts for people. Um, so. Instead of, like I do often, searching through dusty drawers, you know, and old boxes of stuff to find old contracts from like 20 years ago. But, you know, it's, you have, as a producer, you need to have to be organized. And one of those things is to, is to make sure that your business side is organized. And it's, we all want to get in the studio, mess around with plugins, compressors, microphones, get drum kits mic'd up, make some cool sounds, get some cool synths out. But unless you sort out the, your logistics and your planning, that's 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 fifty percent of producing, you know, logistics, budgeting, planning, all the dry stuff that's not fun to talk about. I actually really enjoy that side of it, especially now as I, I do less engineering. I don't, you know, I spend a lot of time on projects, planning them out, and I get quite granular with it. I really enjoy that side of it. I love learning about it. Yeah, it's you know, it's yeah. like I love a, I love a good budget. You know, where I can map yeah. things out and I can look at flights and I can look at accommodation. I can negotiate with studio managers yeah. and try and get good deals for everybody. And um, it's fun, you know. It's like, and you get a good deal percentage of the artist. Then the then the key is sticking to it. Yeah, making sure you don't go over budget and everything. That's why you've got to be realistic with your planning. Yep. So, so I, I'd always I'd encourage any producer to really look at logistics as a fun part of the job. What's not fun in like, like at the moment I'm trying to, I'm sorting out an album for early next year. I'm speaking to like La Fabrique in France and Hansa Studios in Berlin. It's like, what's not fun about speaking to some of these amazing studios and negotiating with the studio managers and planning out a session that, you know, you've got to look forward to in like 10 months time. It's like, you know, it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, I got an email from Hansa last night. I'm God, my God, so many of my favorite albums were recorded at that studio and we're talking about going there to do a record. So it's like, that's fun, you know. And then you look at that. I've already started looking at flights. It's like, all oh, right, you can do this, and then we can go there, and you know, you know where we're we going to do pre-production, all this stuff. So, yeah, it's um. What what um what what about some of the uh, I guess, for want of a better term, like the not so perfect scenarios where you know for producers who are are working with the mate down the road, there's no label involved. 
potentially, no, um, you know, not yet. There's no Warner saying, "Hey, invoice for this many yep. royalties and etc." And like, you know, just just on the protection side of things, you know, like uh, I guess for for producers who are you know working with all these artists that aren't signed that are just kind of releasing on, you know, well that are bypassing the record labels mm. and just going straight to you know um, an online aggregator and music yep. goes out there and it. You know, let's say it doesn't blow up, but yeah. it does actually do quite well. Yeah. I mean, that's most records. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much every record that's ever made. Yeah. There's no label. Yeah. You know, there's probably not a management. Yeah. Even more reason just to have something in writing. Mm. It's it's a just a really simple agreement of just, hey, we worked on this track together. Uh, we co-wrote it or we didn't co-write it. We sort of, you know, sort of, yeah. This is when we did it. You know, just really simple information. Yeah, you know, it's just because yeah. someone's a mate doesn't mean to say you don't do things properly. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's it's because ultimately the best way for you not to be mates in future is to have an <laughs> argument over money yeah. and royalties. Yeah, right? you, know, you didn't write that, you know, because I, I try to think of records I made thirty, forty years ago. I can't remember much about them. Mm. I can't remember if I wrote a guitar part for it. I can't, remember, you know, it's like you 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 forget this stuff, and it's really easy to forget it, and you interject finances into that yeah. and you know, some money starts coming in for it mm-hmm. you'll soon not be mates you know yeah. so so even if just to protect your, your your friendships and your working relationships with people have something in writing it doesn't have to be the mpg contract it can just be you know here's yeah here's a letter we both signed yeah. you know here's, here's you know here, here's some record of what we did on that day yeah it's like, like songwriter splits yeah, do them yeah. on the day don't do them two years down the road you know, just like at the end of each day, go. If we're not going to do Nashville splits, which are the whoever's in the room gets an equal share, yep. which is always the best way to do it if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, decide on the day who did what. Yeah. Write it down. You can get you can get apps for your phone that, that do songwriting splits yep. that log songwriting splits. There's lots of ways to do it. There's wow. no excuse not to do I it now. That. Yeah, no, just, that's cool. Little phone apps, sort of. I can't. I'll, I I'm sure you guys can look it up, but. Yeah, you know, there's 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 lots of ways to log stuff now, you know, log stuff with Apra straight away or whoever your collection yeah. agency is, yeah. you know, sort of just just do it early, get, get that information done while it's fresh in your mind, and the same with production stuff, you know. Were you the engineer on the record? This is you know, the other thing, you know. Were you the engineer on the record? Were you the producer on the record? Were you producing and engineering it? Mm. Did were you songwriter, producer, and engineering? Produce production. In the, in the world I grew up in was very simple. Yeah. The songs were written. You'd get a call from the label or management saying, would you produce the record? Your involvement was just as a producer and you get your producer royalty for it. You get your advance against royalties. You had nothing to do with the songwriting. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, now the world is most producers are songwriters and engineers and they do everything. So where does songwriting end? Yep. When you're working on a demo, and where does production start? Yeah. So, you know, you have to start defining those r- rules of where they are. It's like we had this very early on when we started doing the Song Hubs program with APRA. So what were essentially songwriting demos, people wanted to release those. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you need, to, you need to pay the producer for the work yeah. he's done on the yeah. record yeah. or she's done on the record. And it's like, oh, it was, but it was a songwriting. De- you know, yes, but imagine it like you're building a house, right? You have a plumber and an electrician. Mm-hmm. They're both working on the same house, but you pay you don't pay them the same. But yeah. you pay them separately. Yeah. And the production work should be paid and recompensed separately to the songwriting. Yeah. And, you know, and then you start mixing up. I get a lot of calls about mixing up 
production royalties with songwriting royalties. Mm-hmm. You know, songwriting royalties are fairly easy to organize. You decide who wrote the stuff on the day. You send you send a spitch to APRA and it's done. And APRA will collect money based on that. There's no agency that collect producer royalties. It's basically a revenue share between you and the artist. There's no there's no APRA, there's no recorded music in who collect producer royalties. Mm-hmm. It's, it's basically a one-on-one agreement between you and the artist or you and their management or you and their label. So it's just it's 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 a, it's a revenue share of the income that comes in from that record. We did a whole thing on the last Amps program about we had Dean from Recorded Music New Zealand talking about mechanical royalties, and we had Mike from APRA talking about songwriting royalties and why they're different and why they're split up. So it's um they they're not the same thing. Yeah, and it's like yeah. it, it's and it's confusing. I've I've artists who have been have been making records for twenty years phone up and say, explain producer royalties to me. I'm so. Mm. You, you know, you've released like ten albums. <laughs> Do you not know? It's like well, the, 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 um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask was like, um, it, it's a bit of a question that needs to be unpacked, and it was around so royalties. And then I've had a lawyer speak to me about you know like producer points. Producer points and royalties are the same thing. The same thing. And I've um, you know I've also done projects in the past where I've done the production. Um, would I still be considered like the, I guess, part of the songwriting because I've I've created the music, like I've, I've written the music. So that's kind of yeah. If you if you wrote the music, yeah, then you are song you that's are, part you're, of you're the songwriting. But they are different roles, and they and they need to be. Yeah, that was part of that was going to be the next yeah. one. Was like, what's the difference between like let's say, um, what's it, a beat maker and a, and a producer? Yeah, to say a beat maker is a producer. Yeah, and are they are they kind of like? A, is there a thin line in between them? Because no, they're the same thing. Yeah, being a producer and a beat maker, the same thing. It's like a producer is a beat maker, beat maker yep. is producer. It's like yeah. So is it okay for the I guess the beat maker slash producer to just you know like if we're talking about royalties and protection to just be on as a writer and then if like, the how, song how is, is if the work? song is based around their beat yeah. yes they they you know the song if the song would not the song wouldn't exist without that beat yeah and it's like you know a beat is not it, it's a bit of a misnomer because a beat really isn't just in the world i grew up in a beat was like yeah 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 <laughs> right okay now a beat beat's pretty now much a beat is pretty much all the music <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's like and i used to get confused <laughs> when people tell me you know you got any beats and it's like it's like, what do you make, like drum machine stuff? Like drums, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, you yeah. know, I'm a drummer, so that was my first thought. And it's like, oh shit, no, beats are, are the music, you That's know? Right. And yeah. if you're in, And if you're top lining over a beat, you know, that beat is half the song. Yeah. I mean, you know, a sort of a, you know, a good way to, to look at songwriting is 50% melody and lyrics, 50% sort of music. Yep. If that's the case, then, every, you know, if the beat is... It's fifty percent of the music, so yes, you're entitled to the songwriting. Yeah, so it's just the songwriting is dealt with separately from the production mm-hmm. side of it. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets grey and confusing. Yeah, and and the confusion is convenient to some people. Mm-hmm. It's convenient than people, you know. It's hard to explain. I've been doing this for forty odd years, and I sometimes still find it hard to explain. Yeah, because I, you know, you, you look across the room and you're like. They're not getting this at all. You know, it's really <laughs> they still don't know just between songwriting royalties and producer royalties and how they work. And it's like, but it's it's beholden on us to learn that stuff because how are you going to sustain a career in an industry where you don't understand how the financial side yep. of it works? Yep. You know, we're creatives and creative people don't like talking about money. 
it's just part of the thing you know mm. it's like it's it seemed kind of vulgar to talk yep. about it yep. but how are you going to sustain a career within the creative industries if you don't talk about finance and money and mm. and how to be recompensed properly you know mm. you can i skirt around it a lot by using words like what's our resourcing for this record in other yeah. words well, how much money you got bro yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like yeah, there are ways to do it without this sounding thing it's like, you know yeah. you know Did you get funding <laughs> yeah it's like you know and this and that yeah the funny thing is oh there's a whole other kind of kind of worms it's like i mean one thing i should really point out here as well is the confusion over over master ownership this often gets bandied around as a kind of like the th it's thrown into this sort of mix as like of, of royalties mm. and production and songwriting it's like you know who owns the masters it's like basically the masters should be owned by the artist not by the producer not by the engineer not by it's like we encourage in the, in the mpg that all masters should be owned by the artist and then the next question often in new zealand is what if what what if NZ and Air paid for it? It's like yeah, it's like well, NZ and Air, yeah, yeah, well, NZ and Air specifically because a lot of and more people will get their funding from NZ and Air here than they would from a major record label. Mm -hmm. NZ and Air are basically just paying the bills, mm -hmm. and they're not allowed to own any copyright. That's part of their part of the broadcasting act. They mm -hmm. can't own it. So they're basically just just presume the money that's coming from NZ and Air is basically paying for the master. This is the way we look at it with the development grants. That those masters are owned by the artist, not by the producer, because mm -hmm. ends in a pain for those masters. Yeah. The moment you factor in master master ownership, it becomes problematic. Imagine this scenario: in twenty years' time, a song gets used as for a sync in a film, like a major film, say, yep. and a, a lot of money comes into that film from that from that film company into to 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 go to to use that song. So who owns it? Oh, well, there was this producer who worked on it and he kind of owns 50% of it, but he died like 10 years ago. And, mm. you know, it's like, it's so we yeah. you know, have to speak to his family and we don't know how to contact them. And it's like, there's nothing in writing. And it's like, see, you know, instantly you see the problem, right? Yeah. If the artist owns it, you go to the artist, I want to use the song, great. Here's, 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 here's the deal. Yeah. If there's any income from it, that will get that will go through to the producer, and the, you know this is why you need producer contracts. Mm. That will filter through the system, through through the producer, you know, producers or their family or whatever. But the use of the master is important. The artist has the ability to be able to exploit that. So, but the uh, master ownership is often used as a way to avoid paying the producers properly for the work they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, I had this conversation with Ashley Page about master ownership, and he was the first person to say. He avoids master ownership 100 percent of the time, just because it, because because of exactly those problems. Yeah, and it's also you know so we want we want Joel Little to produce or Sam Young to produce our record. Okay, that's what it's going to cost. Oh, I can't afford that. How about you have fifty percent of the masters? So, like, well, no, just pay them for what they do. Pay them yeah, what yeah, yeah. if you can't afford the rate, go to a different producer. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the moment you 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 interject the master ownership into it, you you're storing up a ton of problems for yourself and everyone else down the road. Yeah. So, so just we just have a blanket advice for the MPG. You know, the master ownership is owned. If 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 as a producer you've worked on the track and you've not been paid for the track, yep. you own the master. Right, right. You own that right. master until the artist or somebody in the representative they pay for it. Yeah, you you retain ownership of that master. Yeah, like if I've not been, there, there are masters I still own now that I've not been paid for the work for. Mm. I I I've, 
this one session that I did in 2001, I've never been paid for it and I still have all the tapes. <laughs> and every every sort of five or six years, I get a call from the, the manager, you know, can we, can we, you know, yeah, well, when you pay the bill, you can have yeah. them, you can have the tracks. <laughs> but I, lit I literally physically own the masters. Yeah. Even to the point, sadly, like 10 years ago, he got in touch. The singer's died. We want to release like a posthumous album. I'm like, great. I, not great he's died, but, you know, that's, that's a really bad way of putting it. I'm sad he's died. Yeah. But you still need but to pay, the for the pay for the masters. As soon right. as you pay for them, you well, you know, I'll happily let you have them as soon as you pay the bill. And it's like, it's like, you know, it, he tried every angle, you know, mm. knowing him, the manager, he, that could have been a, a sort of ruse that he, he just wants to get the masters. That's right. But, you know, you, until you pay the bill, you know, you own the masters. And it's like, it's, if you think about it, it's fairly simple. You know, it's like, you know, you do, you do the, you, you sort of do some work for someone and it's like, you know, it's like I painted you a picture for, or done you an album art for a thing for you, for, for your release. It's like, okay, we'll pay me for it. And then you can use it. And just for some of the listeners, like, so when you say the word masters, are you talking about the, like, we've produced it, it's been mixed and then mastered? Just the, yeah, the the, the music. The music. Yeah. But yeah. that incorporates everything. The final yeah. masters, any mixes, the the multi-tracks the stems yeah now is a good chance for me to to try and once and for all tell people the difference between masters yeah. multi-tracks and stems yeah. all right because this drives producers crazy right <laughs> yeah it's like you get the call uh hey bro can you send me the stems okay so you send the stems oh no i wanted the separate tracks you asked for stems stems are a stereo mix of each instrument including all EQ, all compression, all reverb, all mm. delays. Get You know, you have a, a stereo mix of drums, but it's got all the effects and everything on them. Yeah. Same with bass, same with guitars, same with keyboards, same with vocals. Yeah. The multi-tracks are the individual instruments, kick drum, snare drum, top mic, bottom mic. Right. All right? So if you want if you want to mix the whole song yourself, most people will want the multi-tracks. If you yeah. just want to do like a remix and you want some vocals with all the cool effects on it, then you want stems. the stems, right? They are different things. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, shamefully, I was, speaking, I was speaking to Simon Gooding at his seminar a few weeks ago, and he goes, do you want to tell me the difference? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Simon, come on. It's like, it's like, it's one of those, those, those kind of things that has bugged me for years because stems started as, when we were mixing on analog mixing desks, mm. back into Pro Tools, when, when Pro Tools was good enough to do that. And if someone wanted to remix, you know, they wanted like, oh, can we have the vocal up a bit? Or, you know, we want to change, we want to sort of mute the guitar of that section. You know, you'd have to go and set the whole deck. You know, you're looking at a whole day just to set the song up and on the, on the desk on again. Disc. You know, even right. with full recall, like yeah. an SSL duality or something, you're looking at like three, four hours to get back to where you were. Mm -hmm. um, so by doing stems, you could do minor changes of, of, of mixes without... Right. You know, so that's right. how stems developed. And then it was like, oh, great, I can use those for live now. So you get your yeah. backing vocal stems and your brass stems and your keyboard stems, and you can put them into, into Ableton and use them for live or whatever. Mm. So that was the original development of stems. But then they just became the secondhand term for multitracks. Yeah. It's like they are different things. And so I would just encourage everyone to use the correct terminology because someone at a label is going to say, actually, for stems when they want multitracks, or yeah. they want multitracks when they want stems. Yeah. So it's like just. Yeah, you know, I was part of the era that you know I just knew the word stems, and I thought stems was just multi-tracks. Who's um, making the stems? Yeah, this is the this is the other difference, right? So, 
a lot of mix engineers will not just mix completely in the box they'll maybe run through some outboard gear as well so they can't just um sort of run off stems um without running them off in real time if they're going through outboard they've got to you've got to run them off in real yeah. time so yeah. imagine a whole album with the stems that's a day's work yeah so yeah. so if, if somebody can't contact me and say Oh, can you send me the stems? I'm so well. Do you want stems or multi tracks? Because stems cost you money and multi tracks free. I will I will give you the multi tracks from the session. Who all I got to do is drag and drop a file and send it to you. Yeah. With stems, we've got to physically go in, run off all the stereo mixes of everything in real That's, time. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I get you now. Yeah. So mm. so 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 you know most producers, mix engineers will bill at an hourly rate for stems, but provide but but you can provide the you know the multi tracks free. Although yeah. most Mix engineers will, will not give you the sessions with all their kind of like bells and whistles on. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's best to get the multi tracks from whoever the tracking engineer is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, because you know they they do want to protect some of their tr right. tricks. You know. Yeah. Also, a lot of the plugins will not work because they've got special plugins, and mm. so it's like um yeah. So now, I've put that <laughs> that bugbear to rest. It's um yeah so I, I will keep <laughs> I, I will keep banging on about it at every workshop because ultimately you need you need to know the terminology but that's that's how stems developed it was it was just out of necessity of of, of mixing on analog desks because really until you know all my mixes are still done on on sort of on sort of big console desks until six seven years ago. You know, I still wake up in the middle of the night and do sort of like if my mix engineer was working in the UK and sort of work on mixes in the middle of the night. Mm. Now it's great. You kind of wake up, you know, they're in the box. It's kind of like, yeah. I'll yeah. have a listen today. You go to bed. I'll speak to you tomorrow, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So it's a lot easier now, but it was, it's, it's still, it's fairly recent development that you just open your, open your session up and, you know, it's, it's a much better way to work now. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was all day mixes you know yep. and then you get something wrong and you got to go back and do it again it's yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. It was rough can we um take it back to how your career kicked off and where you started doing music before you ended up in auckland well yeah started playing drums in school plays in in in, in wales in the 70s and uh and watching school bands play and um thought that'd be cool it'd be cool to be in a band drums look really interesting you know it's like you got all this gear and you're back at the stage and you got like everything shiny and it's like it's just got like shiny stuff i'm like a magpie and so i started playing drum school plays and then sort of school music competitions and then i sort of um i did my first gig i persuaded my dad to get me a drum kit you know luckily you know sort of i came from quite a sort of you know sort of nice middle class welsh family Although dad, dad was a London, yeah, for London from East, East End, London. So I started playing school bands, dropped out of school to join a band. That was kind of the start of, you know, the, the lean years of trying to, you know, learning your instrument, you know, playing. But actually, the band I dropped out of school to play with, we just, we were, I was just working on the mixes for our second album yesterday. It was like that, it was, it, it was sort of this prog rock, rock band from Wales called Retreat from Moscow. And our first album took us 42 years to make. And our second <laughs> album has taken us three years to make. So it's, um, but it's literally the same musicians that we've, I've kind of bookended my life with, you know, when I was a teenager. And our first album, which we released um, in 2022, 
Yeah, so our single came out in February 1980, and the album came out in in February 2022. Wow. So it's like, so yeah, so this these musicians and this band has been my, the, the start and so end of my sort of musical yeah. lives, really, you know. So, um, so yeah, so it's it's been really interesting going back and, you know, sort of reconnecting with those musicians. And we just started, it came out of, we had a curry together before I moved to New Zealand. And I'm like, Let's, we should we should record some of the old songs. We, we had some cassettes of stuff we did back in the 80s. And it was like, you know, they disappeared long time, long ago. They're, they're now on their fifth generation. And, yeah. all, you know, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we just started tracking away and it was over like about six years. And then we got all this music and said what should we do with this and we we approached this label and they're like oh can we put it out and like, yeah we didn't know what to do with it we just did yeah. it for ourselves and, yeah and it did really well and like it sort of got great reviews and went to a repress and so all of a sudden we became this kind of like this new prog band that had been together for 42 years yeah, yeah. so that that's how it's it, it started with that group of musicians really and then um then I started doing more and more as a session drummer. I, was, I think I was in 12 bands at one point. Mm. Like I, I kind of embraced sort of technology in the 80s. I like drum, as well as drum kits, I had like drum machines and Simmons SDS-5s and lots of electronics. And a lot of producers who started at that time, uh, like Chris Hughes with Tears for Fears and, Rich, and Richard Burgess from Landscape, Trevor Morass who played with Bjork, you know, we were all kind of quite embracing the technology mm -hmm. so i ended up doing a lot of sessions where i was programming some playing some programming so i did i ended up doing a lot of session work it was really just being in the studio seeing how all that worked and really enjoying like the technology but also enjoying the environment of being in the studio mm -hmm. that magical thing where you walk into the room and then there's nothing and then by the end of the day you've, you've kind of rearranged all these electrons and you've created something that's musical yeah. it's a yeah. it's kind of magical thing I always remember John from Retreat from Moscow saying to me this back in the seventies, like, how does music go down a wire? Like talking about electric guitar? It's that you know, it's and you think about it, it's yeah, ridiculous. Right. Yeah. It? It's like, you know, how do you create music do and you send it then. down a wire? Yeah. It's like and, it's and right. the recording studio is like I found it like that magical that you would just you'd walk in and then you just do this stuff and you sit back at the end of the day and you like look at the speakers and this stuff comes out of it. It's like yeah. wow. Yeah. How do we do that? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I still, I'm still fascinated by that. I still love that process of being in the room and just creating something. So, so it was like, oh, maybe I should move into that side of music because you know, I, st I, I, I was fairly late becoming a professional musician. I was like, so late seventy, uh, late, um, late. I was uh, twenty seven. So this has been late eighties. I was doing a lot of session work. Um, I did like session, sessions for like Roger Daltrey and like um, Daryl Hall and and um, I was I was in a band. Cool. I was in this. I played this guy Corey Hart, who's Canadian singer songwriter. who was big in the eighties. Lots of top ten hits in the mm. states. And I was I was working as my day job, which was I was as a labourer one day digging holes up in the Welsh mountain. And I got home and I got a call from a friend uh, Matt Butler, who Matt. I gave got Matt his first job as an engineer and very, very rapidly moved from this little studio in Herefordshire through to becoming Paul McCartney's engineer at his studio in Hastings via Air Studios where you work with like wow. Stones and Dire yeah. Straits and everybody. Yeah. So Matt called up and said, um, what are you doing next week? He said, do you want to come to the Montserrat in the Caribbean and record this album because the drummer's <laughs> been fired? <laughs> and I'd been doing a few sessions for Matt in Air London and 
So a few weeks later, I'm on a Cessna light aircraft with my drums from flying from Antigua to Montserrat to, to the legendary Air Montserrat Studios. And it's like, and, and I got there and, um, and Corey Hart was there. I didn't know that my first day was kind of an audition. It was just me and him, him on piano and vocal, me on drums. Yeah. And we worked through the songs. He's like, and so I didn't get sent home the next day, which was the plan if yeah. it didn't work out. When? <laughs> and, uh, and so I stayed there for a couple of weeks and we worked on the record and we'd spend the days, mornings recording and then me and rest of the bass where we go windsurfing all afternoon while yeah. they did guitar overdubs. And then we'd come back and have dinner. And it was like, it was like, wow, this is what I'd started music for, to be in the Caribbean <laughs> making records, you know. And it was like, right, I am never going back to another job in my life. I cannot, there's no, there's no turning back there. Yeah. And I haven't to this day ever had to go and do another job. I've been a musician since like February 1988. Yeah. Because later that year, I went on tour with Corey. We toured like Japan, played the Budokan in Tokyo. I literally went from playing pubs in Cardiff to the Budokan in Tokyo in one fell swoop. Yeah. And so it was like, it was pretty amazing. And also during that period, in between Corey's tour, album and tour, um, I was in this Welsh band called Waterfront and, and we did an al we'd worked on an album and that we had a top 10 hit in the States. So I was rotating between Corey's band and Waterfront. And we, I was emptying their tour in the States and playing for Corey. So, so I had this like few years of just being away on the road when touring was like no mobile phones, yeah. you disappeared off into the, into, off the, right. the horizon and no yeah. one knew where you were. <laughs> right. You know, Perfect. what goes on tour stays on tour <laughs> yeah, and all yeah, that yeah. shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it actually meant something. And, uh, and um, yeah, it was fascinating, like really amazing. Because all I'd really wanted was to be a musician and make music for a living. Yeah. And, and you, I went from like the Welsh working men's clubs, which is the yeah. best, like... Um, training you'd ever get because yeah. you know you either play well or someone throws a beer bottle at your head yeah you know yeah. you make noise during the bingo and you're dead you're a dead yeah. man you know? <laughs> so you know you learn about stagecraft you learn about sort of uh you know how to work an audience how to song arrangements i learned a lot about arranging songs yeah i knew the arrangement of every whitney houston song mm. or certainly every whitney houston single and you know it's like you just you learn about song structure you learn all this is you know paying your dues i suppose would be the the term yep. really so when you get confronted, you know, you get into a good environment, you know, you make the most, you get, you only often only get like one or two chances to really kind of launch your career. And I've had this discussion a lot. It's like, you know, you never know who the person who's going to walk through your door is. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, Simon Gooding's a great example when, when he got a chance to work with Pink on some recordings because she was, she was working in. She was had a gig at Spark, and she came to, to Roundhead to work on the tracks. She loved what Cy did. It's like, what are you doing next week? Do you want to come to the States and work on my album? He was just really, he worked to that point where when the moment arose, he yep. rose to that occasion. Yeah. I've had a few of those, you know, playing with Corey, obviously, was one. That's silver platter stuff. Yeah, and, like, you know, when yeah. I, I remember, um, you know, after the Manager Preachers had been really, already been really successful, sold, you know, several million records. I owned this little studio in Cardiff uh, that, I, that me and a business partner bought in the in the early nineties, and uh, James and the band like phoned up one day said, uh, "What are you doing tonight? I need to record a few songs." And uh, I, he said, "Are you free?" And I'm like, "Okay, let's you know come in industry." Um, yeah. And some of those songs ended up being on "This Is My Truth," which is one of their big selling records, and and um, and, and and having that studio in Wales in the in that 
in that period when we, you know, we had, you know, the Manix, Stereophonics, Catatonia, Super Furry Animals, Gorky Zagadio Monkey, 60 Foot Dolls, lots of really successful bands coming through. Mm. We ended up working with loads of these great bands. So, but I'd been, to that point, I'd, I'd been working in studios for 10 years. So I knew what I was doing. I felt confident. So when you got, when the chance arose, I ended up working for 11 years with the Manix. Yeah. You know, producing loads. It started off from that little demo session, ended up producing several records and touring with them as a musician. And yep. so you got to grab that moment. It's like, because, it's yeah. you know, you might think that your career is going nowhere, nowhere. And then someone walks through your door who may, will change everything. Going back to 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 Amy Wodge again, you know Amy was a re always a great musician, brilliant artist, made great albums. You know, never really had any breaks, mm -hmm. and she she like got a publisher that's like send me some young kids to work with. Yeah, I need to write some songs. Somebody, the mm -hmm. first person they sent her was Ed Sheeran. Wow, and she tells me showed me the story about she. Ed came to her kitchen and cut a guitar and played the songs. She ran next door and said to her husband, this kid's going to make us millions. And <laughs> he did, you know. <laughs> they did a lot, you know, and it's like, you know, he got her a Grammy. She's now one of the world's most successful songwriters. But she really struggled to get to that point. Mm. You know, but so you never know what fate is going to throw you, but what you've got to be is ready for when it does. I've benefited from it. I know a lot of musicians who struggle their whole careers and never really get that break. But I also know ones who've like just worked and worked and worked and been really, really good. And all of a sudden, someone else will recognize that. Yeah. And that's, that's the moment you've got to be ready for. Because you blow that. Yeah. You can look back and regret that forever. So well, you, you, don't, you never want to be in that position where you feel unprepared for something. Yeah. On, on, another, on another side of that, you know, like you, you mentioned, you know, like you, you played drums, you know, in 12 different bands. You've been in these studios and, you know, like, you know, you just kind of did stuff with mates like for me i feel like it's important to have the experience like what i'm finding with some producers is that they're wanting you know they're looking for you know like who's going to make me blow up and, you know and they don't often find that where they're not really looking to kind of like just gain experience through working with other people you know doing little things here and there building up you know like a more stronger foundation so that when those moments do hit let's say example pink they have the experience to be able to attack a project like that. Yeah, not really a question, but something I wanted to contribute to, you know, like I'm sure that, you know, the projects that you've worked on and they have been approached and gone, hey, do you want to come and ask us? It's probably attributed to all the hard work you've put in. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is that, but also that, there is so much luck involved. And, and yeah. we're in an industry where timing and fortune are kind of everything. Mm. I mean, this is a story I've kind of recounted a lot. I, I can relate very yeah. well to that, yes. I've, this is a story <laughs> I've recounted like a ton of times, but I think it's really telling in the way the industry works is um, the first song hubs, we had a, a, an amazing songwriter called Mazella Mack, who she'd just come off writing like nine songs on the Madonna record. Mm. But her big break was writing um, uh, Wrecking Ball for Miley Cyrus, along with Sasha Scarbeck. Wow. So Sasha and Mazella both came to our first Song Hubs event here in 2016. And we did a, a sit down with, 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 with Mazella about this. And she recounts this story about how Wrecking Ball was a hit, right? Mm -hmm. It started with the week she, start, she wrote it, she called off her wedding, all right? She was going to get married. She was in, I think she was in Flint, Michigan. I think she's, she's where she's from. 
She flew to LA. I got to get out of town because I like everything's gone crazy, right? Yeah. She called off a wedding. She goes to LA, phones a publisher up and says, "You've got to find me a songwriting session." I'm going fucking mental here. Yeah, if you excuse the language. And so they put her in a room with Sasha Scarbeck, who was a great Brit songwriter who was, you know, he's worked on some amazing records and I, who I've kind of worked on a few things. So they're ch- chatting away, and it's like Mazella's like. Tell Sasha the story. Sasha says, well, how's your week been? So you'll never guess what's happened to me. Called off my wedding. You know, so Sasha's like, sounds like a bit of like, a bit of a bit of a wrecking, bit of a wrecking ball kind of thing. It's like, it's, wait, I they said, what's that thing that you knock buildings down with? Yeah, yeah. Wrecking ball. <laughs> right, okay. Start writing the song. So they start writing the song, and then anyway, you know, sort of like they get through the day, the song's written. And 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 my, and uh, most like this would be great for Miley Cyrus. She's just coming off this Disney club thing and it's like, maybe it might be a really good thing for her. I've got, I've got her email address. So she says, right, okay, well, when would be the best time to send it to her? So like, Sunday morning, she'd be hungover. So she sat in her car with, the, with it ready to go on her phone, right, to yeah. send, the, send the MP3 and just kind of waited for the moment and then just like, Same. now's the time, <laughs> yeah. hits the button. <laughs> the next day she gets a call from Miley. This song's amazing. I'm going wow. to speak to my producer later. So, yeah. they, you know, Miley so anyway, checks the, her emails. So the wow. So, yeah, no. so the song gets recorded. Yeah. <laughs> so the song gets recorded. And then then the next thing, yeah, I guess a call. Have you seen this video? She's naked on this wrecking ball. It's gone viral. It's like, so literally, the, the, basically, the moral is okay, that, mm. and the way that Mazella described it was for a song to be a hit you've got like a whole row of flaming hoops yeah. and you've literally got to jump through every single flaming hoops and fate has got to let you jump through every single hoop yeah. if you miss one yeah. it's not a hit yeah. you jump through them all eventually you'll get a hit record yeah. right but any one of those if, he's, if she'd have got married it wouldn't have happened if like if, if Miley hadn't been hung over it wouldn't have happened if, yeah. if, she, if she didn't like the song it wouldn't you know there's so many things that would factor into it yeah. the fact the video went viral that made the record a hit and it's like so it's like, how do you plan that? You can't. All you can do is do what's in front of you. You write the song to the best of your abilities yep. and you put it out there and hope that it's going to work. Yep. You know, like every producer who's listening to this now will be, you know, it's just, it's, you, you can plan as much as you like. Mm-hmm. You just got to write a really good song or produce a really good record. It's always come down to this, isn't and it? And just like, and yeah. just... Just a good song. And it might, and I've had records that I've made that I absolutely love right mm-hmm. i love everything about them they sound great they are the the the, the experience was amazing and that no one's been interested no yeah. one's bored them nothing mm-hmm. it's just been i mean i'm still loved i still play them and i still love them for what they are yeah. i've had records that i've made i think are distinctly average that have been really big hit records <laughs> <laughs> but who am i to say a record usually it feels average because the experience making it wasn't great yeah you know, it's like there are songs that I sort of I've learned to love because they've been hit records. Yeah, uh, maybe by Op Shop's particular one. Yeah, I hated making that re- that that particular song. Yeah. It was problematic from the moment we started it to the moment we finished it. Trying to get the structure right, trying to you know the mix was a nightmare. Just everything about it was really hard work. Mm. I and then the then EMI were like. That's going to be the first single. I'm like, you are kidding me. <laughs> that song is a nightmare. And then it, it was the biggest record in New Zealand that year. Like yeah. Above every other record, it got the most radio play. It was big. It was a massive hit record. 
even now I yep. put it on, I, I go, that keyboard too. at the end is not, yeah. it's too quiet. You know, I still, yeah. but I've learned to love it because it, gen, you know, it generates yeah. income and it sort of, and it was a big hit record. So who am I to judge what that record, mm. if people like it, people like it, you know? Yeah. Your perspective on the record is kind of almost not relevant because you will be colored by the experience of making it. Now as producers, we're meant to be above that, but we're not, yeah. you know, we're always going to like love some records more than other records. But this is that going back to that point we made at the start is because you don't, you, something's not been a good experience. Doesn't mean they say that record's not going to be a really big hit record. Mm -hmm. So you want to try to make sure that even if you're really enjoying the process or not, you're putting everything you've got into it, every record that you make. Mm -hmm. You never know who's going to, you know, who's going to listen to it or, or which flaming hoops is going to, you're going to, you know, yeah. someone, someone else might jump for those flaming hoops. Too. Yeah. yeah. Was, that's why I count that story so much because it shows how hard it is. But all you can all you can control is what's in front of you in the studio. Mm -hmm. You know the, the artists you're working with, getting the best out of them, motivating them to get the best performances. All the musicians you're using, mm -hmm. really getting them in a good headspace so they work properly. Yeah, you know the psychology of producing is like super important, and you get a room full of motivated musicians and who are in, the, in a really comfortable environment. Mm -hmm. They will you will get the best out of them. So as a producer, you need to get that, you know, so you can control all those things. Yeah. When you finish the record and hand it over to the artist or the label, it's kind yeah. of out of your control then. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't have kids, but I'd imagine it's like sending your kids to school. You do all you can to bring them up <laughs> properly. Yeah. And then you, you say, okay, the, I go all out right. into the world. <laughs> yeah. I will try and help if I can. Yeah. But ultimately it's down to you. Yeah. And, 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 and recording songs is like that. It's like, I've done everything I can do. Off you go. Yeah. And if you're a hit, great. If you're not, we had fun making it. Yeah. Everyone enjoyed it. Yeah. And you can look back on it in 20 years and go, I'm really proud of that record. Mm. You know, and, and then it becomes about legacy. Like at my age, it's not about the money you earn on it. I'm, I'm very fortuitous that I've had a, you know, a good career and, you know, I, I have security. So everything I work on now has to, is about legacy to some degree. You know, it's like I want to leave some records that people really like, whether they're big records or not. That's not, again, not my, I can't make them big records all I can do is make good records yeah and um so it's about the quality of records I'm leaving behind it's about things like music programs that aid other producers so yeah. it all sounds a bit noble but you definitely start to re to reevaluate your career and yeah. your life choices as you get when, yeah. you, when you get past 60 yeah. it's a really yeah. sobering thing because yeah. as a young musician you never think you'll get that far yeah you know, I'm I'm now the age my grandfather was when I was growing up, mm. and you know, and this is a man who'd been, you know, he'd he'd been he'd been to war, he'd been, yep. you know, a crack marine. It was yep. like, now that's a, that's quite a legacy. That's why yeah, I know. Yeah, so, yeah. so I want to I want to do something that feels like it has benefit. Yeah, because you know he went and fought for freedom. I make music. Yeah, yeah. It's not a, yeah, it's kind of like yeah, it's not really the same ballpark. But you know, it's like um, it. I want. You can do what you can do, yeah. and and so, so it's really about sort of, you know, helping helping other producers have have you know to be as lucky as I've been in having a whole career making making mm. music. Because hey, you know, I every time I write music producer on 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 a immigration form, I'm like, how did how did that happen? Yeah, you know, how did I get to a point where that is my job? Yeah, I must be like the luckiest person alive to do that. Yeah, and I think it's easy in you know it's easy for me because I grew up in a world where 
you know, social media wasn't a thing. There were less pressures on me as a musician. The only way he could get a release was through major record labels. You know, you could, you could do small independent things, but it wouldn't, you know, they, it was hard to break through. Yeah. Now, you know, everyone's comparing themselves with the best. Mm. You know, every, every producer who makes beats is comparing themselves with all the best beat makers in the mm. world. That's a real tough ask. You yeah. know, I never had to deal with that. So it's like, um, yeah, I don't envy young producers. So anything that we can do to kind of help them through some of the difficult parts of the industry, I feel it's like beholden on me as an older producer to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and I mean, for, for the young producers, it's, um, I guess I noticed that it's, you know, you spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, like it's being all about the artists. And then at some point during, you know, the last couple of years, I noticed it started moving towards it's more about like the producer hold the producers were holding the power. Mm. And then I'm, you know, now I'm kind of in the mindset of like, well, has the power gone back to the artists because the market is so flooded with production. Artists, artists are really savvy when it comes to production now. Yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of the um, producers we've been shoulder tapping for the development grants are artists who produce themselves mm. it's like you're really good at producing your own music yeah. especially with like with 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 female producers who maybe don't have the conf you know that there's always that you know we all suffer from imposter syndrome but it is particularly prevalent with a lot of female and non-binary producers yeah so it's, it's like you're really good at what you do why don't you go and work with another artist and 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 you know because production can be a lifelong career yeah so you want to encourage artists who are really good at producing so you know there's a lot of great artist producers in New Zealand mm. there was a, an interesting um, article I wrote with, by Pete Townsend a few years ago it's, and everyone was like oh man the interview was like how am I, how, what about the, how did all those great bands come out of London you know in the 60s you know the Stones and the Who and like and the Beatles you know well Beatles obviously Liverpool but you know and, and Hendrix and all you know all these people were based in London working on stuff and he said well that's kind of all there was yeah it was just us yeah so you know of course we got attention she said you know now every morning I get 50,000 songs in my email yeah from artists and they're all really good you know a lot of them are really good so how do you compete now you know it's the, yeah. the industry is a, is, is a different place now like going back to what I said all you can do is what you do and just do what you do really well mm -hmm. and try and you know try and get good at interacting and networking and whether that's online you know yeah. sending your beats out to someone else or you know or speaking to people you know speaking with people of the industry you know i'm very com comfortable going to a room looking people in the eyes and having a conversation but that's my generation yeah you know a, a lot of a lot of young producers they're much more introverted and they, they just want to sit at home work on their beats work yeah. on stuff so trying to get them into an environment where they can go and interact with other people this is a big part of what we do with the amps program it's what you guys do here at crescendo it's yeah. like it helped develop in those social programs is really important because because ultimately that ability to network is what is one thing that will really help with the industry whether it's going out and getting funding from an organization mm. or or sort of like persuading a promoter to put you on the bill or all these things they kind of require a certain degree of social interaction and and if those are skills that, that we can sort of help and teach with yeah that's a really important thing to be able to do. This is the end of part one of our conversation with Greg Haber. Please continue to part two. <laughs>